Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, and we're continuing our conversation with Jamie Patrickoff, producer of such films as Half Nelson, Place Beyond the Pines, and The Accountant. Jamie brought Francis Ford Coppola's 1983 movie, The Outsiders, featuring the first or second screen performance of, ready, Tom Cruise, Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze, Matt Dillon, Emilio Estevez, and Ralph Macchio star as a gang in Tulsa, and they're stabbing, and they're cruising, and they're greasing their hair, and they're smoking cigarettes, and they're swinging tires in the back alleys of the tough back roads and rough and tumble Tulsa, Tulsa, and they're stomping so ass and they're talking to cherry valley and her convertible 1954 corvette stingray and they're staying golden pony boy you kind of sound like this is gonna lose most of our audience or maybe it'll keep most of our audience you kind of sound like Helen wolf there for a second or, or <laughs> well that's wolf what is. i was trying to go for was the uh the wolfman jack 19 19- uh, since it's set in the fifties, I wanted to do like a little. Uh, I think it's weird, Wolfman Jack. I think it's weird that Ralph Macchio, being an Estevez, changed his name like his brother Charlie. I just think that that's weird. That no, Ra- have... what? No, no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Ma- you mean it's the Macchio Charlie dynasty? Sheen, Emilio Remember Estevez, Vincenzo and Ralph, Macchio? He and was Ralph in uh, Casablanca. Are all brothers? And they changed their name. Their father no, is not. Charlie Sheen. There, I just Martin love the Sheen. names of the cast. It's like Stabby, Itchy, Soda Pop, Scary, Screwball. Soda um, Pop actually is one, by the way. You know, not right in the head. Just a, it's like you know you don't hear nicknames like that anymore. If you had your choice at this time when this movie came out, and you said, "I'm gonna just Give randomly pick eight kids out of a lineup." You could not ask for that. A, sounds off. Are we on a Are we on a white slaving boat uh, off again, the coast of Casablanca? Again, again, this is just how Hollywood works. Everybody, this is the oh, that's right. So we're in the it's basement like of a pizzeria boys. in suburban Washington right. D.C. and I, and we're what we're did like, you say? We're uh, we're auctioning them for? Are they shirtless? Are they oiled up? What What's the context? I there? think what I think like I think like. I think you meant cast them. They found great cast. So anyway, that all happened in 1983. All these boys got uh, put in a lineup. And, I mean, it's it, it's another... I wouldn't say this is the best of Coppola's movies. It's very good, and it, I think he achieved what he was trying to. is this sort of like dreamy, like nostalgic portrait of a, of a time. It was almost like his... American Gigolo response to or American uh, Graffiti to Lucas, who he uh, excuse yeah sorry American Graffiti that's what I meant he was the producer of American Graffiti and Lucas was the director so it almost feels like his attempt at, at and, and his style of taking on that same subject matter um, very uh, poetic and you know long his long dissolves and sunsets and sort of longing for more and he gets really great performances out of all these kids but that's really what a great direct one of the many 
signs of a great director is casting and, and, and then getting something out of the cast that you select. But almost all the greats will say that, you know, and they have varying percentages, but 75% of your job as a director is picking the right actor because a lot of them see them as the head of their department, right? Okay, you're the head of this character's department. I'm going to check in with you. I have 40 other departments I have to manage. Send all your questions, comments, complaints, guest recommendations, love letters to how I got greenlit at gmail.com. Just not your scripts. All right, so you uh, you do have Nelson. You're in. Now you're in the indie film space. You're doing scripted stuff. Yeah, you're doing it, right? So Yeah. I mean, that film had so many stops and starts. That's its own two-hour podcast. But um, we, um, I, after I made Half Nelson, when we were finished shooting it, I said, Derek, I said, you got to meet this guy, Ryan Gosling. I was like, he is, you guys are twins. He's perfect for your movie. Um, Derek didn't really know his work. And Ryan you know, Derek had no work to know. And, um, <laughs> and I, and I convinced Ryan to have coffee with Derek the day before he was leaving to go back to LA and against his wishes. And we sat down to have coffee and about five minutes into the coffee, it was like, you saw one of the, it was like, it was like a scene out of a movie where you realize these two people were falling in love and you were sort of like the third wheel and they forgot that I was at the coffee Even with there. them <laughs> <laughs> like an hour, an hour later, I said, guys, I think I'm going to, I'm going to take off. And I don't think either of them, uh, didn't even you know, hear you. I don't you think just, they, yeah. Just float Faded into the background. W- would you say you're, you're the job of a producer is a bit of a matchmaker with that putting together, you know, talented yeah. people that, that yeah. maybe didn't think they could work together or who him. I, I, I don't get that. And you're like, no, 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 no. That, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's so much of it is relationships. It's um, it's, it's connections. It's, it's figuring out the right partnerships and marriages. You know, I, I mean, I was talking to a new filmmaker yesterday and was talking about my role as a producer. We like to get involved as early as possible and the, you know, a real part of that is, you know, cause I'm gonna, I want to help figure out which DP I think is right or which, um, you know, AD or line producer. And, and part of that is credits and experience, but part of that is personalities. And that's, you know, I think a big job of producers. So you, you get that granular, you get below the line, you know, an AD, I, the great AD for you, <laughs> based on this I, wonderful I, melodic script you wrote, this AD is going to kick ass for yeah. you. Yeah. That's yeah, great. I mean, you know, I, um, I mean, I was telling this story recently, um, which sounds insane. Um, but when we were doing place beyond the pines, you know, that was going to be, a. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a 50 day shoot, which for an indie film was a long shoot. Um, you know, we were going to be in, uh, upstate New York and Schenectady for almost five months. And me and Lynette Howell, uh, Taylor and Alex Orlovsky were the producers. We took three trips to the Albany Schenectady region just to figure out what hotel our crew was going to stay at. And I mean, and we even did one trip back to back. We drove back, we went there, we drove, we settled on a hotel and then we came back to the city and then we, we were so confused. We drove right back up three hours to go look at another hotel. And I honestly, for how, how insane that sounds, I honestly believe that was a part of the key to the success of the film. Um, Cause you were about to put f- people for five months in the Schenectady area and they were me staying at a hotel and they were me living there working round the clock and they needed a hotel that was a clean hotel that had some amenities that was walking distance to place to get a bite to eat that had things that were open at odd hours and yeah, 24 hour um, room service for the weird hours and all that. Well, we were, we were staying at a holiday inn. So room service wasn't exactly, um, and, and a place by the way, that Ryan Gosling was going to stay and Ava Mendez and Mahershala Ali and Ben Mendelsohn and Ray Liotta and, you know, trying to figure out, how you're going to put them at a holiday inn and, and convince them of that was really challenging. So, you know, I think, 
you know, my friend Neil Moritz, uh, who produces, you know, um, you know, some small movies, you know, when I'm telling <laughs> him about some of the granular stuff I get involved with, Neil is like mind is blown. And, um, and, and just everybody out there, he does the Fast and Furious movies and everything is yeah, huge, huge um, budget movies. Right. So he's like, what yeah. are you doing? What are you getting involved in that? Come on. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think again, um, he, there's no right or wrong. I mean, I think he's right in the sense that if you're a producer who wants to be doing volume and wants to be doing a lot of different things and at, at scale, you don't have, you can't have the bandwidth to get involved with who, what, who, what AD you're hiring and, and what hotel your crew is staying at. But well, it's an aircraft carrier versus a sloop, right? I mean, yes. you're like, you're, yeah. you're in there, like actually helping with the ropes and stuff. And he's on the bridge, like launch missiles, you know, like it's a different job even, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and your films are much more bespoke and handmade, even as they get bigger in budget, it seems. And that, no, yeah. no slight against him. I mean, I love, no, I love this stuff, great. you know, it's yeah, just different, different output, yeah. you know, different, different exactly. workflow, different output, right? Um, yeah. Well, now you're on place and beyond the pines with I. Yeah, just as a fan. I mean, I love that movie. Like the the whole reason for this was like, oh my god, I love that movie. You know, so I I don't want to bore you with all the like. Tell me about this guy. Tell me, like you know, fifty minutes on Bradley Cooper. You know, so uh, just what? How did it come to you? Uh, you know, what was the maybe some highs and lows? Obviously, you told us about sort of the the granularity, but tell tell us about. You know, the filming and I mean, even just like my favorite one is when he walks to the to the ball of death and you switch yeah. the, the the professional rider with him. Yeah. And I, I watched it 10 times. I'm like, I don't see it. Where, how'd they get him in there? You know, how do you just know? That, how do you know that wasn't Ryan? I do you know. Bruce, it wasn't Ryan. I mean, Ryan? That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's <laughs> his, that's his level of commitment to the craft was 14 takes of the, the ball of death, you know, but. By the way, I, I mean, think that's, if, Ryan, if Ryan had so his great. way, um, I think he, he would probably have would. To learn that. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm but, sure, the insurance um, guys would have allowed that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he did. You know, most all of his own riding, and you know, mm -hmm. almost all of his own stunts. I'd say per se. Um, um, that um, it was funny when we were doing. It was one of my first job with real stunts on it, and I'll never forget. We had this amazing motorcycle stunt guy named Rick Miller who did. All, you know, Batman and all these big things. And we were about to go do the stunt where Ryan's bike crashes. And I turned to Rick and I see him sort of getting padded up. And I said, uh, I said, Oh, I said, Rick, I said, how do you do the stunt where like, you know, you crash the motorcycle? Like what's the trick? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, how do you, I mean, like, you know, the motorcycle is going to crash into another car. I said, what do you like, how do you make it you know, safe? He's like, well, he said, when, you know, director tells me I'll lay the bike down and, and, uh, you know, and sort of just make sure, you know, crash into the car. And I said, I know, but where's the, like, what's the stunt part? Like, what's the, and he said, I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, I, I crashed the bike. I said, well, you can't just crash the bike. I mean, that's not, he said, well, yeah, that's, that's my job. <laughs> that's what I get paid for. I said, Rick, I said, that's not, I said, we need to find you a new job, Rick. <laughs> By the way, just cause we, we love to do like obscure terminology of movies when, when, if if Ryan Gosling didn't do that stunt, what do you call it when you seamlessly kind of switch the actor and the stuntman? Does anyone oh, on man. this? Do you know what it's I called? Know. I learned I learned the no. name. It's called the, uh, the Texas Switch. Oh, oh, so, okay. So, oh, sorry. Have so you heard I, that? I do actually. Like, well, I do. You actually. punch the stuntman, he falls, and then the actor sits up. Or you know, there's a million ver variations of this. You know. It's it's the it's the lore of filmmaking that only the like down and dirty people, the stuntmen and the do you know what I mean? Like it's it's yes. a different yeah, kind of totally. It seems like we've lost we've gained a lot of things, but we've lost that sort of um, uh, almost apprentice level, apprenticeship level mm -hmm. of old Hollywood. You know. Anyway, right. I'm yeah. waxing on, yeah. but um, so but, uh, so when Ryan Gosling did that stunt, how did you feel? <laughs> no, sorry, no, exactly. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, listen, I'd done Blue Valentine with with Derek, and we had a great experience. And um, I actually, you know, post Blue Valentine, uh, became um, Derek's manager. So I actually managed Derek in France. He, you know, we started on the journey of trying to make Pines, um, 
you know, not immediately after, but, you know, shortly after. And Derek, um, you know, wrote the, this great script and, you know, just became trying to find, um, trying to find the, the right actors for the, you know, we knew, um, we knew that, uh, Ryan Gosling was going to be in it. Um, but the question was who were going to be, who was going to be his, you know, counterpart there. And, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a tricky, it was a tricky thing to figure out. Um, because even though it wasn't a big budget film, you know, Blue Valentine was successful, but didn't have box office success. So, and it was a, you know, it was almost a $15 but, but cachet. <clears throat> I mean, I would say most actors were probably taking your call. Like, oh, this guy knows material, right? I mean, that, Every, that upped your... Yeah, I mean, both for me and for Derek. I mean, Derek got, you know, there pretty much wasn't an actor in Hollywood that he couldn't kind of meet with at that time. But we had to find yeah. a certain actor that would help bring the budget that we wanted to bring. And that was could play the part. So, you know, Derek went through a pretty long casting, part, you know, experience and settled on you know found bradley cooper and luckily bradley wanted to do it um and you know as well ava mendez who were both really helpful in you know getting the budget and um and getting the film made and um it was you know definitely not an easy film to get financed and an even harder film to get made um i mean you know that film probably should have been a 30 million dollar film but that was not the budget we were we were given and it was just an extraordinary experience. It was just a you know top to bottom crew, cast, um, location. Um, my mom was actually from the Albany area, so we were shooting where I spent a lot of my sort of you know holidays over the years, and so that was fun. And um, but it was it was it was a grueling production, um, but you know worth every minute. All right, so so look, let's 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 skip ahead a little bit. Scott and Larry on Big Eyes. Tell me about Scott because I've known Scott and Larry for twenty years, and uh, I I want to know what what you did on Big Eyes. Well, Big Eyes, um, you know that one. You know, so you know again back to relationships. I worked with Alex Olavsky on Half Nelson and Lynette Powell Taylor. We worked, we did work to, teamed up again uh, for Blue Valentine. Alex and I actually start, Alex Olavsky and I started working together at Hunting Lane. Um, and, um, you know, we were partners in, in my company at that time. Um, and then we, um, you know, wound up doing a few other movies together. Lynette and I uh, worked together for many years as well. Lynette and I formed a company called Electric City. Um, I can't remember when now at this point, but, um, and through that, we did a handful of films. Big Eyes was one of the ones that she had developed uh, prior to us working together. So she was really the one in the weeds on that with Scott and Larry. Um, and it was less something that I was day-to-day involved with. I and mean, that's sort of the interesting thing as a, you know, as a producer, as you go on and you start working with, you know, with other people and other projects, you know, some projects you're helping with the ADs on and some projects you're, you know, just lending support when your, you know, partners on the projects need, you know, additional, you know, things filled in. So I was, I wasn't as active and on set as much on that one. So just for the, you know, the folks at home, like you, yeah. you're an executive producer on Big Eyes. So would you say that's a, a rough, uh, you know, draft of, uh, of the, you know, when you, when you take the, the, the credit producer, you're you're in the you're in the weeds selecting hotels and ads, but when you're an executive producer, it's a little bit more less maybe maybe a little less hands off, uh, a little more hands off rather. Me me personally, I um I like to be credited for the work I do, and mm-hmm. I like to credit people for the work they do, and I'm pretty black and white about that. And there's definitely. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go through it and on every movie, but they're definitely no, just times. in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the, 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 there's. I mean, for example, you know, not not for nothing. You you, you know, you have uh, eighteen producers on Wildflower. You know, yeah. it's a it's a strange world that we work in, and and I obviously we don't need to get into the specifics, but almost every indie movie you see this now, right? Yeah. You see yeah. a, a lot of producers. And, uh, it's, and by the way, maybe that led to, or contributes to your, you're now a member of the PGA. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, so when I see one, two producers, one's in, one's out, is there, you know, a, a, a differentiation? What, what is that? How does that 
change your life? How does that change the film? What, what does that mean? What does a PGA membership mean? Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, I think the PGA does a good job of, of really trying to vet who actually produced the movie and giving you that PGA mark. And I'm really supportive of it. And I think it's, mm-hmm. um, I think it's uh, really important because I think there should be a delineation for the people who are on set, um, you know, and or the people from start to finish who really uh, get a movie to the finish line. I think that that's, um, and I think that they're, are um, everybody it takes you know to be corny it takes a village to make a movie it takes a lot of people you know i i i almost laugh at any movie that has one producer on it um (laughs) um, i'm sure i have friends who've been the sole producer because it's just not possible there's no way right that's the other side of it that people don't talk about now that you know how to make a film one seems more ridiculous than 18 sometimes right so <laughs> totally i mean i can every every producer who worked on my film wildflower um you know did something that was really and had a part that was really important it was additive. Um, yeah. yeah and yeah um, and i'm not trying to ding you i'm saying it's just it's it's that's an that's an evolution of the business as i feel like yeah Right. And maybe that's a good thing, as you're saying, like everyone gets a little bit of credit for that key, uh, you know, pass of the baton to get the location, the star, the the money, whatever it is. It's all everybody plays a role that's necessary. Right. Yeah, exactly. So tell me. So this is a, actually a little uh, encapsulation of your career, because Wildflower, actually the same title was a doc a few years yeah. before. And, yes. and, you, and you thought there's more here. Like what was the. Yeah. Um, and so, you're the same director, the same subject matter, and you just went deeper into the into the uh, the story. Yeah, I mean, um, so just from a macro macro um, standpoint, I mean, almost almost all the films I'm doing have done. Um, I almost could be made as a documentary, could be made as a limited series in some ways. You know, have different. I think that they're all really rich stories. Um, that, um, and that's just what I get excited about. Wildflower was actually brought to me, uh, as a script already. So they had, the director had done a documentary. Um, he had found some producers who worked with him on, uh, and a writer named Janice Savage on developing a script that was, um, that then ultimately through some other relationships, I got introduced to them and they needed uh, a little help in kind of getting the, the script, you know, financed and ultimately cast. So I, I got involved with Katie McNeil, who works with me on, on almost all my projects. And we, you know, added the value we could add in, in helping take that script and actually get it, get it made. You work here? No, Esther, I'm picking up your trash because I don't work here. It was just a really beautiful story and a beautiful script. And it was... I thought, you know, telling a story with um, a neurodivergent, you know, um, mother and, and, and a father with other um, injuries uh, at the core of it and a coming of age story was just a very different approach to the story you've seen before and just got us really excited. Flipping, it's almost flipping the script of what we've seen yeah. in that space. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, uh, we're, uh, you've been very generous with your time. So should we, Ryan, should we jump into Outsiders yeah. for... I mean, look, yeah. I just want to say Blue Valentine is, a, a, you know, I, I don't have to tell you this, but it's a great movie. And I, <laughs> it's there's a lot of people that really love it. And A Place Beyond the Pines is fantastic. And I, I think you just, your career and the movies that you've been able to make have been just, you have this path and you've stayed really true to it well thank you and you've been able to work with a lot of great talent and well well. discover talent like elevate talent like i would say gosling's greenlit moment is is half nelson let's be honest you know yeah i mean he's obviously super talented but let's be honest like he that was the radar wait what's oh that guy holy shit you know like he's got more than just hercules guest starring stuff right exactly yeah um, would you, do you, do you think life's getting better for you or is it, is, is every project hard in its own unique way? Every project is hard. It does. Sorry. I mean, I, yep. I didn't think you'd say any different. It doesn't, you think you get over this, like, Oh, uh, I've arrived. And then it's then day two, 
you're back to like, hey, you guys want to read my script? No, yeah, yeah or whatever. Like, it's just the same like hustle. <laughs> it's an uphill fight every day. Wow, another humdinger, Jamie Patrickoff. He's a he's a, tr- um, he's a doubles triples guy. He's a he's, he's a smart him. man. He's got good taste. For somebody who doesn't have good taste, Craig Perry, longtime friend of the show. Just kidding. We love Craig Perry. Actually, Craig Perry, uh, producer of uh, Final Destination and American Pie. Just don't make him mad because he can like, he'll park like a wood hauling truck in front of your car. Making the new, I think it's Final Destination 14. I don't even know what it is, but uh, Craig Perry. Who does have incredible He things. came out of his uh, ma- mega mansion made of $100 bill stacks <laughs> and is like, you know what? I'm going to rip off another one of these bad boys. What I love about him is he's very present in what he does. And, you know, when you get a guest like that, you can ask him, like, well, what's the secret? How do you deal with a studio? How do you deal with a big movie star? And he'll say, children's blood. And he'll say, uh, the most strategic way to ask for something for what you want. If you want to know the answer to that, listen on. You never ask for a job. You ask for advice. You literally show up on a plane and just kind of go in and start working. <laughs> well, there's that. But no, you all, you just it's ask for <laughs> truly like you ask for advice and you well, there's two fat there's two sides of this. You ask for advice and usually if the person loves to sort of dispense their wisdom. But if you're not asking something of them that either requires a lot of expenditure of political or social capital and you just want their advice, people respond positively to that. So then one month, two months, three months down the road when an opportunity comes up, they'll think of the person who wasn't asking for them to sort of lay it out. They'll go, oh, they'll call you and say, hey, I have an opportunity for you because you didn't ask for the job. You just asked for the advice. I have never failed by just asking for advice. I mean, we'll get to it a little bit later, but there's a whole thing with Bob Shea at New Line, which is just about getting advice from him and not asking him for anything but his access to his experience, which most people, no matter how grumpy, they're perfectly fine. They love to talk about what they've done or, or, or show how smart they are. Make sure you go back and listen to all the archived episodes of How I Got Greenlit to find out more of gems from Craig Perry, as well as all our other guests of our two seasons of Joyous Noel. Uh, <laughs> please. <laughs> That's pretty good. Let's get back to the show. All right. Thanks for listening. And now back to Jamie Patrickoff. Thank you. You've obviously worked with a lot of filmmakers in front of and behind the camera. Who who else, you know, what are some significant greenlit moments that you've maybe bear witness to or helped contribute to, you know, over your career? Or, or helped you. Or, or, they, or they helped you green, greenlight yourself. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, um, you know, it's funny. I talked a lot about like your network and relationships. You know, I definitely, one person that I think uh, was a critical, you know, person in my career and definitely was part of my greenlit moment was definitely working with John Kamen and Radical Media. You know, I mentioned uh, The Life, the show I did with them with for ESPN and the shows we did together for VH1. Um, I think those, those were... You know, those are greenlit moments in many ways as well. I mean, as you talked about, I continued down the documentary path and, and working with ESPN over the years. And, um, you know, uh, one of my interns on the life wound up running ESPN and creating 30 for 30. Um, so, again, shows you uh, another network person. Um, and I think it also shows you the power of radical media and John Kamen and Frank Sherman, Sherma, um, you know, a lot of the people who've walked through those hallways, um, ranging from Derek, myself, uh, Rich Kleiman is one of my best friends who is Kevin Durant's partner, uh, Connor Shell from ESPN, um, Mike Warren, Matt Ogans, uh, Derek C. in France. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, they've done an extraordinary job of spotting talent and nurturing talent. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a really, that was a really important place. And uh, as far as my career goes. Those John Kamen and Frank Shermer are, uh, they've been very nice to me. Super, I mean, 
like behind the scenes icons uh really of a lot of stuff that we see today and stuff that that they might not have their hands directly in but certainly the roots of media that eventually came around came about especially today i think they they were a big part of their their radical media is a uh a juggernaut of storytelling in so many ways and like an incubator of younger talent i think too they they bring in they have good talent spotting capabilities and bring in people um at the right time frank's just a funny guy too (laughs) frank's very funny he's a he's a they're super nice guys so (laughs) yes it's nice to have that so uh transitioning now because we have to keep the train on schedule we're going to talk about uh a movie that i love uh that i've seen a lot that i think in grade school we read the book and watched the movie of course yeah grade school or middle school yeah middle school eighth grade to ninth grade that's the that's the classic the outsiders and I would definitely claim this to be a B side, Alex. Is this is yeah, this is a this true is, Jamie? This is a true Jamie B-side. followed the rules. Yes, yeah, so. actually brought a B side movie to us. I mean, Jamie, you're from New York City. You, you, you probably grew up with some culture. We're we're kind of Midwest hicks, and so what happens is is we go home and people are like, you know, relatives, friends are like, you guys are in the business. Like, I got Netflix. I got all these choices now like what should i see like i and and you don't want to say godfather john like the same old 10 movies that everybody says so we we thought it'd be cool to call it a b-side which is a thing from music obviously you know hip-hop very well and it was the the notion that you take a a a great director of one of those classics that we all mention and then maybe see what else they were doing and turn people on like oh if you like godfather you know uh try one from the heart or try the you know the godfather or, or conversation i mean these 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 people have made a lot of different stuff and it's good to um, kind of access that to see either the glimpse of the glory that will be, you know, the, the first album that will lead to the classic album or whatever, uh, or after a classic or after uh, an amazing run at the box office or at the Oscars. And, and what else are they working on? And, and in this case, the outsider being Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Pony Boy, Dallas, Johnny. And uh, so this was 1983. This was obviously Zoetrope. Uh, so he uh, had his own studio and he, um, this is post Apocalypse Now, which was kind of probably the, the, the famous capper to an amazing, you know, 10 year run where he was, box office king, Oscar king, king of Hollywood, best writer, best director, best producer, everything was just going for him. And then Apocalypse Now kind of brought it all down a bit, or at least, you know, brought him back to earth. And this was that that next chapter, right, where he was doing one from the heart, he was doing Zoetrope, he was owning his own studio, he was owning his own content. And, uh, and he did the classic, you know, high school, which at the end I watched all the way through. He dedicated it to the high school class. We're like, why don't you make a movie of this? Which I thought was I, cool. such a, what a cool story. <laughs> I could, I, yeah. I, by the way, that was something, you know, when you, when I got the task, I mean, I obviously wanted to come to you with, uh, you know, all the films you don't want people to come to you with their favorite films. Cause those are your favorite <laughs> films, you know, whether it was heat or it was Goodfellas or it was Godfather or it was taxi right. driver or it was, you know, Scarface or, you know, I, that was what I wanted to talk to you about. But I, I, so I had recently watched Outsiders. I don't even know why I watched it in the last six months to a year. Um, and I had, I had not remembered or known that part about the fact that it was the reason uh, that he made the film was because of this group of seventh eighth graders. It's like dedicated to Miss Jenkins and her you know, eighth grade class who who were yeah. reading it. Like we said, like yeah. we all have. It's it's like a rite of passage. My kids uh, also read it and liked it. Um, it was written by a kid, S. E. Hinton. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not a message to all of our family members to keep sending us more and more material. But I, you know, it's listen to people. <laughs> people always ask me how I get material. And I, you know, I get, I get weekly material from 
friends, friend, family, friends, uh, that's yeah. something that someone sends me. And I, we always look at it. I mean, I always, you know, sometimes not me directly, sometimes maybe it's only works for me, but you know, if it's a book or something, I, you know, we, you never know. I mean, the idea that this came from a, a class of middle schoolers is pretty wild. Um, yeah. So, um, everybody's got a story. Yes, exactly. Everybody's got a story. And obviously, literary adaptations have worked well for Coppola in the past. Godfather being yep. a book, Apocalypse Now yep. based on a, on a book. Um, I think we're bearing the lead on this story, though. Which is the discovery of Tom Cruise. The cast. The cast. <laughs> cast yeah. Unbelievable casting yeah. of like epic, uh, epic purport. I don't think you can put those guys together a year later or two years Right, you later. couldn't have got him in There's a room no for way. the money. Yeah. Well, I that's why I think that's a good line between your career and this film that you, I, you, that's, you brought. Yes, exactly. Because you, know, you, you, you were spotting some pretty heavy duty people now that sort of run Absolutely. the business back at, you know, in their yeah. first film. Yeah. I think, and, and I'm, I'm in this movie probably, you know, again, as you guys mentioned, especially at the time and shortly after was the, you know, the largest number of sort of box office behemoths all in one cast together who were all pretty much unknowns at that um, moment was yeah. pretty extraordinary yeah and i think um yeah i mean i think with filmmakers i think that's probably why i gravitated towards the film is that i think with filmmakers and with actors um i've been you know lucky enough to work with uh, a handful that are sort of again whether or not you want to say you know using your term at the greenlit moment but whether it's Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden or Derek C. in France or Elgin James or Matt Ross, uh, you know, worked with a lot of filmmakers who, you know, I've been with them at their greenlit moments. Um, and the same thing with actors to some extent, you know, with Ryan, I think, you know, Bradley Cooper obviously was a star at that point, but that was really one of his first more um, actor. I would, I mean, yes, bigger role. And I know you were, like you said, you were trying to increase the visibility of the project, but, I didn't see him that way. You know, he, it was a left turn for him. It was, he was going down the comedy route and totally. I think if you, if you know, it depends how you want to define that, you know, I'll let you define your greenlit moment. I mean, Bradley was a, was a well-known actor who hadn't been seen as a dramatic actor. Um, and if that was his opportunity there, you know, listen, that was Mahershala Lee's first real movie. Um, you know, Ben Mendelsohn, again, first, you know, I think one of his first sort of roles in an American film that was uh, yeah, pretty well so known. Great. So um, great. And it seems like you work with everybody. Like you, they have fun with you. They come back for more or that's that network building, right? You just. Uh, yeah. And I think that's also your dream. I mean, I think nothing speaks louder than people returning to work together, you know, it says, mm -hmm. you know, whether again, uh, I, you know, whether it's, I'll never forget on my front half Nelson, we had this amazing gaffer uh, named Smokey. And when uh, I was told on blue Valentine that Smokey wasn't available, I was like, I was like, I couldn't believe that we could make the movie without Smokey. And it shows my naivete about like, you know, <laughs> you know, Stuff. crew and whatnot. Right, the bench of like good below the line guys, but I yeah, suffer the same. Like, it, it, it always scares me when I have people that I think are critical to my success, uh, and I can't get them because of schedule or whatnot. And I feel like I'm losing my good luck charm if I can't get these certain right. people. So I've learned right. how but to I think, deal with sadness sometimes. Yeah, and I think, but I think you know the the idea that I want to work with them again and they want to work with me again is you know oh, is, is sort of all you can hope for. I mean, it's light, the ultimate. Right? I mean, yeah, it's it's a, the the award of excellence. Is all, yeah, that guy. Especially since you spend eighteen hours together for uh, weeks on end, and you eat yeah. and do and live together. in a Holiday Inn yeah. next door. Yeah. yeah, it's very uh, intimate. You know, I, I don't. You know, one thing we know, Jamie, is that one of the things we find is that younger folks, uh, and not to throw stones or anything, but the their the background like they don't know movies from 2000 so <laughs> that's that's a classic for to, them. to talk to yeah. talk about the outsider outsiders uh you know we uh, alex and i have a good friend who teaches at ucla and he mentions films that i'm uh i forget what we were talking about the other day but he was like yeah they don't they don't know what that movie is like their reference right. really no. is i'm like are you kidding me so yeah. as far as the outsiders goes it's from 1983 which might as well have been made in 23 so uh the what we were talking about is cast 
and the cast is as follows for anyone and i highly recommend and i think that's why jamie brought this movie see thomas howe matt dillon ralph macchio patrick swayze rob lowe emilio estevez tom cruise and then diane lane, diane lane leaf and, garrett know. tom waits who i forgot was in this and of course sophia coppola <laughs> it, it's just like that is the ins- most insane lineup of, yeah. of talent in the so was there is there some be was there some draw to that movie other than like where were you in your life when you saw this were you a kid did you see it later like was did you see I it definitely I listen I had I, I I will give credit to my brothers without knowing uh, factually but I'm gonna assume I had two older brothers I'm gonna assume that they um, are the ones who first uh, showed this movie to me uh, mm-hmm. you know I would have been seven when it came out so I don't think I discovered it on my own um, but um, you know it was definitely a, a movie I remember from my childhood and um, I, you know I think you know those names like Pony Boy and Soda Pop were things that uh, were ingrained in my head, and yeah, I mean the list goes on and on. And um, I think so. You know, it was def- it was definitely one of those movies that uh, I I had seen you know multiple times and uh, and loved it every time, and it and it held up for me in watching it again recently. Um, Shout out to Janet Hershen, uh, Hershenson. Uh, I won't even bore you with her. I mean, it's almost every movie that you love for the last you know, 40 years. Princess Bride, uh, Tucker, uh, License to Kill, When Harry Met Sally. I mean, talk about having a good, good nose for, for talent. I, I want to ask you guys a question. So in uh when i read the outsiders and i saw this movie uh and i am a uh, i would have been 9 when it came out so i don't remember seeing it and you know at an initial release but i could still relate to the story that it is a story that i think is in set in the 50s it, it, it's like right? early to mid 60s it seems in the cars 60s. yeah yeah but yeah. um yeah even the wardrobe kids wear that stuff today like, i could yeah. still relate to that as a midwest kid uh-huh. i don't know if anybody in the last 20 years could relate to that story i don't I oh just, I, I i don't know i don't know about that I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's a question I'm, and... I'm putting it to the to the to the panel here like mm-hmm. it just I I felt like I understood the dynamics that the kids were dealing with. I come from a small because town. you were small town Midwest kind of vibe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, and I that's not necessarily where it's set, but I I just I wonder today if if that film would resonate with someone who would be fifteen, sixteen years old today. That's They're still question. reading it in class. Are they? I don't know. They are. I, my kids did. Oh, okay. There I mean, go. I mean, listen, I you know. I grew up as far away from this story as you possibly could <laughs> grow up. Right. Right. So, you know, it, it spoke to me in some way and it still spoke to me. I mean, I think, you know, relatable. I mean, yeah, I mean, listen, I, there's something, there's something I still got out of it and connected to it. I mean, I think, listen, the, the, uh, there's obviously an element of every generation relating less directly to every you know from True. films from previous generations True. so i mean it sounds a lot of the stuff that happens in the movie is so foreign i mean you talked about you know kids today i mean you know trying to think about life without a cell phone is you know almost unfathomable so yeah. um you know but i um, well look at like they're wearing chuck taylors and jeans like i was looking at some of the wardrobe and like kids could this could pass some of these kids the greasers could pass today and even like the cool kids with the with the high water pants i was just like a lot of this stuff is 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 if you yeah, there's still letterman there's still letterman jackets. letterman jackets and what i loved most was the state gold was that pony boy was almost like the filmmaker of his group. He was the artist. He was the author. He was the the guy who noticed the poetry of a sunset. And that part, I think, is the universal. Was the notion of where do you fit in in the world? Who who is some of your surroundings or some of your social group is you're born into? I.e., like you said, your brothers. He had older brothers that sort of pulled him into the greaser set, but. He wasn't a greaser. He was just a kid, you know, and that was sort of the thematic 
uh, the underpinnings of it. But um, I just, it was so gorgeously shot. I mean, I forgot that Gone with the Wind was the book that they were reading and it was sort of a piece of the plot. And now I see these gorgeous like um, uh, silhouette shots on the sunset. I'm like, oh, he's doing Gone with the Wind shots. I didn't even realize until you know now of the the sort of homage effect of some of this stuff and the music is so retrograde i mean he really was trying to make it feel like it was made in that time mm-hmm. not just yep. like look like it you know yeah. a lot of yeah. um and those and those like split diopter shots and sort of what he was you know even like what what, what blows me away when you see a movie before like say you know 2002 is uh Oh wow! Look at that night scene. It's lit like, like, a, like a shopping mall. You know, it's like wow. Oh, they yeah. had a lot of lights that night, or no lights, and it's like you can't see shit. You know, and the stars oh, yeah. are faked, and you're so we're so spoiled of you know like the post collateral Michael Mann. Like, look, we can see the night sky. You know, now right, yeah. you know. I, I even looking at Wildflower. I mean, it's it's it looks amazing. And I think some of the, you know, one of the things we have gained is like lower budget movies can still look amazing because of the uh, smaller kits that are needed, smaller uh, lighting packages and, and just being able to get into real world situations a lot, a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Totally. I mean, it's, it's amazing what you can do with technology now today and how you can film things and make them just look beautiful. Yeah. 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 As opposed to clerks or something where they're like, well, they didn't have any money. So great job. You know, like right, <laughs> what yeah. we kind of winked and nodded at, but um, it really, uh, it, it, it holds up and it doesn't hold up. I mean, I do, I, I all I kept thinking, it was, God, there, there's a lot of gang violence in Tulsa in the, in the mid sixties. <laughs> like people yeah. are getting smoked left and right and stabbed. And it, it was, it was a hot, hotbed. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a universal thing, though. I think that that concept of uh, the struggle of being young, uh, I think that does speak to all generations. So everyone's got their struggle. And one thing that I don't know, and and maybe people with kids can tell me better, but I, with you, the, you with, have two, you have two children. I know, and I, and so they didn't get bullied, really. You know, oh, at least they didn't tell me about it. I remember one of the things that resonated with me was when you're a young man, and I don't know if this still happens or if it was just us, but for Gen X young boys and men, the threat of physical violence was real and palatable to me. Oh, at, at, abso- now, abso- at my now school. You, now, now, by the way, I have two, six, three former athletes on this thing with me. So you guys maybe can't relate. Like, I don't know if you were big guys from like 12 on, but I was not a big guy in high school. So I kind of had to mind my P's and Q's, if you know what I mean. But like, that was a thing was being bullied was like getting into fights was like threat. You know, we're going to stomp you at the, at the bike rack after, you know, oh, I was going to say, Jamie, you were raised in the rough, you know, the good old days of New York city. So anything can happen <laughs> to you at any time, but that's street violence. I'm talking about like kid violence in the high school violence, like, you know, getting roughed up or getting threatened, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, listen, I grew up on the Upper East Side on Park Avenue in New York City, so I'm not going to pretend like I grew up on the t- rough and tumble, but I did go to school in the Bronx. I did go to school in the Bronx and had my fair share of buggings and whatnot. So yeah. I, you know, I, uh, on the way to school and, um, I, listen, I think, uh, I think I have two teenage daughters. I think bullying is uh, front and center today. I think it's just different bullying. I mean, I think online bullying is much worse than physical it. bullying. Yeah, yeah and, and it's much worse, right? I mean, because I think what kids will say to each other on a text, on a group text, on Instagram, on Snapchat is a lot worse than someone just punching somebody in the face. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, to your point, I don't know if, uh, you know, listen, kids are smart. So I think they can relate to bullying that, you know, happens in the Fablemans the same way bullying happens <laughs> online, and 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 uh, right. you know, right, so right, right. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's all there, and it's also um, you know the socioeconomic asp- aspects. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's all it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well I think what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, 
I think we get, we get thanks, Jamie. Jamie, thanks, Jamie, Jamie any, anything, time. anything further? No. Oh, you got a really plug, fun. plug, 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 plug. Hit it, Wildflower. It's a really fun movie. Everybody will like it. You know, old, young, families can watch it. Very What's proud the logline? It. It's it's a coming of it's, age uh, story. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's kind of like Coda meets Little Miss Sunshine. It's a it's a coming of age story of a uh, girl who's being raised by a, a neurodivergent parent who she feels that she can't leave them and that she's raised them, but ultimately realizes that you know she's uh, she's uh, had some pretty extraordinary parents who have given her the tools to to move on, and it's that question that she has to answer for herself. Yeah. And it's the cast is amazing from Gene Smart to Jackie Weaver to Kiernan to Alexander Daddario to Victor Rasuk to Reed Scott to, I mean, it's just on and on and on to Dash Miak. Um, it's, uh, and the uh, great new filmmaker, Matt Smuckler. Um, so I um, hope everybody gets a chance like, to see it. Like you, uh, a doc doc guy coming into yes, uh, scripted. Yeah. Commercials. He started commercials, actually. And um, okay. so, yeah, but um, it's cool. So I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. And Instagram or any, you big on the... Jamie Patrickoff at Instagram. You can follow me. Um, and uh, I got a food newsletter I write, which you can sign up for through <laughs> through my through my Instagram. Yeah, on your new Food Network show, you're coming back around. Exactly. Uh, coming back, yeah. So, are you, are you still doing the Zoom, or is that was that just? Yeah, a, I do a podcast that, uh, called. It's called. Yeah. I do a podcast called Lunch with Jamie that you can listen to on Spotify or Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Nice. Uh, awesome. So lunch with Jamie. Lots of different lunch ways. with Jamie. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, great. Well, uh, Jamie Patrickoff, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening yeah, and fun. Awesome, and man. thank you. Uh, it's just you know a lot of this is just like oh you you deal with this shit too okay good like I'm not crazy. <laughs> All right, that was Jamie Petrikov. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Incredibly illuminating conversation. We appreciate you coming by. Love to have you uh, anytime to continue the conversation. Uh, folks, that's it for us. Uh, I'm Alex Collegian with my co-host Ryan Gibson. We are How I Got Greenlit, and you can get more uh, hits. If we're, if we're bopping your, uh, your bell right now, just keep, keep it rocking at How I Got Greenlit on Instagram, Twitter, HowIGotGreenlit.com, and HowIGotGreenlit at Gmail. You'll, you'll be green to the gills until next week for our next episode. Thanks for playing. Thanks, everybody. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.